That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Well, in the eight years of producing Irish Man Abroad, we have been lucky enough to have some of Ireland's greatest authors ever to sit down to talk about their work, their process, finding that elusive flow state and lots more. And today, for the very first time, we've gathered together some of those moments, some of those standout moments from those author episodes. To start with, we're going to hear about the thing that prevents lots of people from attempting to write in the first place, the fear of criticism. Ewan McKenna has faced into more of it than most. I spoke to him upon the release of his book on Conor McGregor and the Conor McGregor phenomenon. And to hear the full episode, including more highlights from the likes of Marion McKenna, Keys, Paul Howard, Blind Boy, Cecilia Hearn, Roddy Doyle, Louise O'Neill, and their fascinating tales from their careers, their own unique approaches to writing, as I said, their origin stories, and how they got to write their finest work. You'll need to head over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Join up for premium service of Irishman Abroad. Access to our full archive, the full episodes each week, including extended episodes with Marion McKeown every Friday and Sonia Sullivan every Tuesday. It's all for the price of a pint uh, or a coffee and a fancy bun. It's how we keep the lights on at Irishman Abroad and I'd love if you did it this week. Uh, but for now, uh, let's get stuck into this. First up, Ewan McKenna. Yeah, I've been I've been working away in the sports department as a freelancer from the time I was about 15 to coincide with school. And I was doing kind of Kildare County games at weekends and local GA games and, and Kildare games. Uh, and a job came up in, in the news department and I kind of thought, Jesus, this would be great. And I went for it. Yeah. And I remember I remember the editor then calling me and he said, look, you're just too young. Come back in a few years. And maybe at a point, maybe people wouldn't respect it. 17 year old interviewing a politician or whatever else rightly or wrongly uh but i just remember at the time kind of feeling so distraught and kind of angry as you would at that age because in my head at least and i was doing stuff as good as anyone in there um and just because some guy happened to be 40 wearing a three-piece suit wouldn't make him any better yet their attitude was about kind of external things like age and dress and this rather than what you're actually putting on paper and that was quite frustrating mm. and and you say it's not the kind of the beginning of that path of you know hurt and disillusionment that is kind of par for the course like you said that your best advice for young journalists is to develop a thick skin quick and you get used to disappointment is is that really the case yeah it's it is i mean and even with the thick skin sometimes stuff i must say can get you down i mean it's it's an industry where you're giving away your work for free, where pay is low, 
where the hours are long, where the public think they have a constant right to question you and abuse you, where legal departments and newspapers who are earning an awful lot more are more and more deciding to shut down what you say rather than ask for your sources. So, I mean, there's all these elements coming back at you and you're kind of squeezed in the middle as the messenger. Mm. Um, and it can get very frustrating. So, yeah, you do have to have a thick skin because you're going to get it from all sides constantly. And and if anything, that's increasing. And and I suppose the frustration then comes from, as, as you alluded to earlier, like if you ever, if be it, say, on the Irish Indo or if I go on their Facebook page, I think Facebook being the worst of all places for this, and your article is up and you look at the comments below, it will be a mix of people making a point that you've already disproven in the article or saying something that's not even in the article or just having a personal go at you or often say if it's a piece about Liverpool, it'll be somebody kind of saying Liverpool or shit. And that's it. There's no, they don't even read beyond the headline anymore. So, I mean, you've, you've these internal factors in the industry that are making it harder and harder an industry that's run by accountants and lawyers more and more and they wonder why the newspaper industry is shrinking and struggling and then you have these outside factors which are growing via social media where people are getting lazier and mouthier about what they haven't read like you and donald mccray has devoted his life to sports writing uh, donald is one of the most respected sports writers in the world in his episode, he told me about his unlikely journey from South Africa to writing for the NME in London. So I get into Soweto and I get out of the car and I'm shaking, actually. 21 years old, having been fearless, I'm going to stand up to apartheid and I would do anything to fight the system. And now I'm pure and I'm actually thinking, shit. I am this system. I am this white boy who for 21 years... Look, I wasn't having the depth of these thoughts, but in essence, I was thinking, I've had such an easy life. I've been swimming in the neighbourhood pools, my mates' pools, talking about music, following sports, having servants, and now I'm here, kind of exposed as this white person. And suddenly... Two of the black teachers came over to me. One was called Shorty, and the other guy was called Josh. And I guess they could see this white boy was looking ghostly. And they immediately just took charge, and they were fantastically warm with me. They Within must have been in bit disbelief, too. Yeah, there they hadn't been many white people working in, in Soweto. And within about 10 minutes, I'm in the Shabin, which is the pub which is 10 minutes away and we sort of having a, a nip of whiskey or something and I sort of look about on the walls and they're all these faces I know and they're faces of Sonny Liston, Muhammad Ali, Joe Lewis, Sly Stone, Miles Davis, my worlds of music and sport are on these walls and so suddenly I felt kind of at home in the sense that I could say, oh, God, Ali, what a fighter. But Sonny Liston was the most menacing guy. And we could just start talking about sport or about music. And then I just felt at ease. So it was incredible how those two things helped me. It's amazing to look back on it and see where you are now. I mean, I'd imagine that your vision for your life at that point, like it had to be gloomy in the sense that 
you know, here you are, you've taken this thing, and as, as comfortable as you now feel, mm-hmm. you couldn't have possibly thought, well, this is what I'll do forever. I understand it was a book called uh, A Handful of Summers that brought about the idea in your head that writing was a possibility and sports writing specifically yeah. was a possibility. Yeah, it was a, a book um, about tennis and it was just an amazingly witty and funny book. And oddly enough, I had to do something with Mike Atherton, the former England cricket captain and uh, works now for the Times. And and Mike Atherton and I were on the stage together and he was saying that the sports best sports book ever was a handful, or the book that he loved was a handful of summers. And I was thinking, wow, that's incredible because I also had that feeling about it. It was just such a intimate insight into uh, professional tennis in the early days, just as the amateur ethos was going, and it just made me laugh out loud. Um, so yeah, that was a, a, a book that um, had a big impact. But I think I had a form of madness in the sense that I did always see myself as an author. Really? Then I thought I was going to be a novelist. So it didn't quite So it was work. still in your head? Yeah, always. And I always kind of thought I, somehow I will end up living in London and I will be an author and it will all work out. And sort of worked out. <laughs> well, I don't know if sort of. That's a, that's a, you're being extremely humble there because once you do get out of South Africa, yeah. you find yourself working for the enemy in London. I mean, this is the magazine that you said was your window to the world. Yeah. Can you maybe take us through because I know the story, right? But I just would love to hear it from you. Mm. That getting from South Africa and finally arriving in what you thought was paradise. Mm. Maybe you could describe to us of what those days yeah. were like. Yeah. And maybe the reality Absolutely. that it turned out yeah. to be. Well, slightly before I came, in 1981, I was 20 years old. And by then, I knew I was leaving. And my mother and father said, okay... And again, showed their kindness and compassion to me. They said, we'll help you go for a couple of weeks to London just to see whether it's for you. They now say, they did think a harsh English winter in December would turn me <laughs> oh, off for a completely. Plan, really? But I went to Amsterdam initially, which was, wow, this is unbelievable because Amsterdam compared to apartheid was such a new world. And then I, I, for a couple of weeks, I did nothing but go to gigs each night. Uh, unfortunately, there was so much snow that year, so I only saw one football match because Arsenal, all the games were cancelled. So we went to see, me and a mate of mine, we went to see Southampton against, I think, Swansea or something. <laughs> went all the way down to Southampton. So I came back even more fired up because I could get the enemy on the Tuesday it came out. And I, you know, all these people, I, you know, Julie Birchall, Paul Morley, all these people I idolised for years. I was getting their words within days of them you know actually putting I guess they weren't putting pen to paper they were typing it so I was even more sure that I was going to come so when I finally my mother and father said okay we'll we'll help you come over and the only way I could get into England was as a student so I had to do sort of an MPhil in international journalism but I knew I wanted to work for the NME so I'm getting the NME still back in South Africa now six weeks late and of course, no email in those days. So I sent a letter to a couple of people at the enemy. One was a guy called Barney Hoskins, who was a, one of the top music journalists at the time. He's subsequently gone on to do wonderful books about music. 
And I sent this letter to, to Barney and with my fanzine. My fanzine was called Who Is That Mass Man? <laughs> and it was, you know, the kind of thing you would, 26 pages and you'd photocopy it and then you'd go to gigs and sell it for 50 cents in, in Johannesburg. And anyway, Barney obviously saw something. I think he thought also this is kind of weird. He was thinking apartheid is going to be full of, he couldn't believe that a guy in Johannesburg loved kind of birthday party in the cave, all the kinds of things he he was busy writing about for the enemy. And he said, if I do come to London, I must meet him and he'll see if he can help me. I got to London after being in Amsterdam for a few days, got to London on, on the Saturday, phoned him up on the Sunday morning and said, oh, can I meet you? I was so excited to meet him. Yeah, so I met him up that afternoon and um, he was lovely with me. And he just said... Um, England's not kind of the place you talk about in your fanzine because in one of the pages was always this idea of what heaven London would be. I would talk about the sound of the tube on the station because in 1981 when I was in a holiday I just loved the sound of the tube coming. And it would be like the start of a Don DeLillo novel where Lee Harvey Oswald's on the subway. But Barney said it's not quite like that. The tubes don't work on time and they smelly people are smoking, which they were in those days. And it's a hard old business. So I so he said, oh, that's okay. Anyway, I started work. I got my first job for the NME. A couple of weeks later, I had to go to a live gig. And I had 250 words. To, it took me about two days to put these 250 words down on paper. So it was amazing that I was doing this. And when I saw my byline in the NME, that was more, I think, than when I had a book published or anything <laughs> else. That was the moment yeah. I went to sort of worked out that if you went to Tottenham Court Tube, that particular sort of uh, newsstand got the enemy before most other people. So I got there and it was an unbelievable moment. But yes, I think I suddenly also began to understand that London was more complicated and there was a lot of injustice in London as well. And it was just the world, like the world all over, yeah. there's injustice. One of my favourite interactions with Donald, he's appeared on multiple episodes now I think he's been on three episodes in total as I said they're all there in the archive but uh, he did a, played a small part in our organ donation episode and he spoke about the first heart transplant now in terms of moving moments in the eight years of this series I, I don't think there's only one that I could think of that could top it and that's Richard Moore his Richard Moore story is absolutely extraordinary. He was blinded as a young uh, boy by the bullet from a British soldier's gun. Uh, here he speaks about forgiveness before he even knew the soldier's name after after he was shot and lost his sight and why he thinks it's possible to forgive someone without there being any justification for what they've done or without even knowing the person i mean this is this richard moore episode it just changed a lot of things for me personally and just his understanding of what forgiveness is and how you can forgive someone who hasn't said they're sorry yes i do think it's possible to forgive someone if you don't say sorry and you know um what i've learned through my own experience with it all is um you know, I, I never found out the soldier's name, the soldier who shot me, I never found out his name until 33 years after the incident. 
But on reflection and throughout those 33 years, I've always forgiven a soldier. So you'd forgiven him prior to to finding out his name. Let's get that clear. So you'd you'd already reached the point of forgiveness before you had the chance to meet him and understand that he wasn't going to use the word. That's right. And that's primarily because when you think about forgiveness, uh, forgiveness isn't really about the other person. It's about you. It's about your ability to... First of all, deal with the hurt that you've experienced. And second of all, find a way that you can move on in a way that you can be happy and content. And quite often people uh, think forgiveness is about letting the other person go, about letting the other person off the hook, Mm. about even justifying their actions. Yeah, take the high road and all of that stuff, yeah. Yeah, and, and and it's not about justifying their actions. It's not about letting them off the hook. If you take something as simple as a child and uh, or, or one of your children and they happen to break a window in your car by accident by throwing a stone in the, outside your house or do something silly like, you know, smash something that's very valuable to you, you, you know, you, you're not going to say to that child, it was okay to throw the stone in the driveway or outside the house and break the window of my car. You're not going to say that, you know, you're perfectly justified in doing that. So you're going to say it was wrong, but I still forgive you. You'll always forgive your children. And, you know, and the same principle, I think, and, you know, we are, it is a very much a personal journey, a personal story, and I totally get it if it's not right for everybody else. But from my viewpoint, I think that it is possible to forgive somebody whilst you can accept what they did wrong, whilst you can accept that there's maybe no justification for what they did. And that, and you can do all of that without even knowing the person that did it, I think. I always find that uh, figuring out how someone finds their passion to be one of the most enjoyable parts of any of the conversations we've done. And when Paul Howard, the creator of Russell Carroll Kelly, came on, his story of discovering his passion and talent for sports writing back in his school days, it really sticks out in my memory. I always liked English at school. I'd wrote a lot of poetry as a kid. I mean, it was it was just doggerel, really, you know. I got involved in the school magazine when I was about 11 at school. And I think when I was about 12, I decided I wanted to be a sports journalist. That was all I ever really wanted to be, you know. And um, what, made, what, made, what brought that about? Well, I, I mean, I just loved I, my life from the time... I was a kid was was about Liverpool Football Club and boxing. You know, they were they were just the two things. I mean, when I was six, Liverpool won the European Cup. They beat Borussia Mönchengladbach three one, and I was allowed to stay up for it. And my brothers were allowed to stay up for it. So we all became Liverpool fans. And then that was nineteen seventy seven. And then they beat Bruges uh, in nineteen seventy eight. Kenny Dalglish, who was my great childhood hero, scored the winner and. And that was it. I mean, I grew up in a house full of boys, so it was always sport. You know, we were mum would kind of open the door in the summer and at about eight o'clock in the morning, and we'd, we'd all spill out into the road, and we wouldn't come back till about nine or ten at night, and we would just spend the day playing football. We were just passionate about football. I remember when I was about 
I think it would. So it was the 1982 World Cup. So yeah, I would have been 11. That was the first World Cup really that I was kind of aware of, like, you know, excited about coming into it. Uh, Northern Ireland had qualified for that World Cup. I just remember being so excited about that leading Mm -hmm. into it. You know, Brazil had a great team and France had a great team. And I had a copy book from school. I still have it, actually. And I would sit down in front of the television every night and I would write down every time there was a match on, I would write down the teams who was playing. I'd, you know, fill in all the scores, the score. And then I'd write sort of three or four paragraphs about the match. Off your own bat. Yeah, I was about 11. I was such a... <laughs> for nobody was, else to uh, no, consume, no, literally for you. A, I was such a lonely kid. Like, <laughs> But it's so funny that 11 years old is usually, like, for people like 10 years younger than you, which is yeah. in my case, 10 years old was uh, Italian 90. And that's mainly the time when guys my age decided they were going to be footballers with every fibre they're being. That's what they were going to aim for, whether it happened or not. Yeah. But that didn't cross your mind. At that age, you were to going, be a footballer. I'm going to be a journalist. Yeah, it did. I mean, that's what I wanted to be. I mean, it was all... I mean, you know, I'll be honest, I, it's it's still all I want to be. I never wanted to... Um, I never wanted to be a novelist. Like, that was never in my plan. And that all happened quite by accident. So when I was 11, I was writing these things out. And I, I think I was aware that that's what I wanted to do. And right the way through school yeah i mean i got great encouragement from from some teachers and you know i had two great english teachers in secondary school called paddy pender and jerry murta you know they encouraged me hugely they knew that's what i wanted to do i think english was probably the only thing i was you know even moderately good at at school or moderately interested in at school and they did they gave me they gave me great encouragement i remember Jerry Murta, when I was in sort of fifth year, you know, he he knew I I used to send letters to the evening press used to have this kind of post bag on a Thursday and they'd have a star letter every week. You know, they'd you'd send in a, a letter about some sporting topic. And when I was at school, it was usually about, you know, Stephen Roach, who was kind of winning the Tour de France at the time. Or it was, you know, Jack Charlton, who was really struggling with the Irish team around that time and you know people didn't think it was going to work out and i would send these letters to the evening press i think i was about 15 14 or 15 and you know three or four times i got picked as the star letter of the week and they published it and you know you got a fiver in the post for the star letter but the biggest thing for me was having having my name in the paper it was just such a thrill it was a huge huge thing to see your and, and, and i have to say it that's always a thrill we, you know when I, years later when i became a journalist to see your byline in the paper above a story that you worked really really hard on and to see your, your name on that you know that kind of never went away but you know when i was 15 to see my name in the paper that was and then it was a there was a magazine called soccer magazine and i used to send letters to them as well and and they, they published quite a few of them I'm kind of embarrassed when I look at them now. I found some of them recently. We um, we were clearing out the attic uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I found some of them. And, you know, it was obvious at 15 I was trying to use words that were just too big for me, <laughs> as, as you do, you know. I was using words like facile, and uh, I probably didn't really know what it meant, but I was just determined to shoehorn it into a sentence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, but that was such a thrill, like, you know, to see your name in a pe- in the newspaper or magazine and and then someone in school might say, I saw your letter in the paper and, 
and then someone the following week might take issue with something you said it's kind of like the forerunner to twitter you know you'd be sort of going back and forth but over a course of several weeks arguing with this person and i had a teacher at school who jerry merton knew i was quite interested and uh, in in being a sports journalist so instead of giving me the essay that he gave everybody else at the weekend he used to kind of assign me sports reportage pieces so i did get great encouragement from my teachers Similarly to Paul, Marion Keyes has an ability to write funny like very few. This is obviously an ability that she had to discover. Uh, Her ability to be funny is so integral to her vast amount of work. Uh, I love this uh, extract we've pulled here. Brian Connolly found this uh, clip. Brian Connolly is obviously the producer, uh, sound production man behind our show. And uh, he pulled this clip from the archive of Marion explaining how Irish people construct sentences as little works of art. I adore this clip and the Marion Keys episode is an absolute must listen. Like, I had no opportunities to speak in public. It never, I didn't even know that I could be entertaining. However, I had always lived with Irish people. And I think that was unconsciously because I find them so much funnier (laughs) than other nationalities. And like my flatmate, Suzanne, who was the one who introduced me to Tony, like every disaster, especially with men, like we'd end up kind of crying with laughter. (laughs) Any bad thing could be reconfigured and recalibrated into an entertaining story. The thing about, you know, the 12 step meetings that I went to and still go to is that, you know, you speak your truth. You just speak about what's going on for you. And I would just be telling how I felt on a particular day. And, you know, I strove for, I suppose, to be articulate and to be honest. But there was something about my delivery that had people laughing. And I was like, what? What's going on? And... That was interesting, that it was a part of me that I hadn't known really existed. And I have to say, like, they weren't laughing in a mocking way, Mm. but simply... In empathy and along with you. Yeah, but something, there is something about the way Irish people construct sentences, that they can be little works of art. Mm -hmm. I'm not just talking about myself, I'm just talking about in general. Sure. We take pride in it. We're good at it. And we do it almost subconsciously or unconsciously. I find it's often just holding the punchline back, holding back. Yes. <laughs> that we have a tendency yeah. in conversation to know that I'll deliver that bit at the end <laughs> because exactly. that's yeah. when people will will really yeah. get it. And yeah. that'll be a reveal that we can all enjoy. And it's funny, like you say, I, I, a sense of timing. Yeah. Yeah. And I grew up around a dinner table where if you could hold them for mm. the duration of your story, then you were a king of the table for, totally. for that time. I know that there's a distance, though, between being in the meetings and you know, in the same way as a stand-up comic myself, there's a distance between entertaining the lads and actually putting pen to paper and committing to, well, I'm going to attempt to write something that I believe to be funny. 
and some of the some people don't get there some people just don't have the courage or simply lack that final little shunt of belief that it takes to go well i'm going to try and create something rather than simply being a raconteur down the pub uh, yeah for you it was reading a short story i believe yeah uh, it do was. you remember what the short story was about and what was the thought process that led you to go i could do that i can't really remember the details it was about a woman who went to a festival and met a pig farmer from Minnesota. Um, <laughs> like it was, it was quirky, definitely quirky, but it was funny and it was irreverent. And it was, I hadn't really read anything similar to it. And I suppose it must have been written in some sort of colloquial style because that was what attracted me to it. Because you're younger than me and a lot of people listening are younger than me. But like, when I was growing up, like in the 60s and 70s in Ireland, everything Irish was so crap. Like our telly was wogeous and, you know, our pop bands were like embarrassing versions of English ones. Like everything we did was just ersatz. Oh, it was mortifying. And so it never occurred to me that like anybody would be interested in reading books written by an Irish woman in an Irish accent. But yeah, I read the short story. I liked it. Something inside of me said, you could do something like that. And there and then I wrote a short story, but I wrote it as if I was dictating it. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't, I didn't strive to be, to have a style different to my actual speaking voice. And that's, that sort of honesty or integrity worked. It's not perhaps what would be recommended maybe by creative writing teachers. But, you know, I was chatty in person and I'm chatty in writing. Sure. And something about it just, I don't know, made people comfortable. JP and Brendan Byrne. Uh, were the aliases of the authors of a book on parental alienation. It's the true story of the very difficult upbringing these two men had and the stark realities of what happens when one parent tries to turn the children against the other parent during a separation. This is the stark introductory account of their own tragic story. What does get discussed a lot about parental alienation at the moment is from one parent who claims they're alienated against another parent. Meaning one parent turned the other... Yeah. Turned the children against... Against the parent. parent. Essentially, parental alienation, as we say in the start of the book, just going to make it clear for people, is where one parent turns their children against the other parent or against other family members such as brothers and sisters who side with mm-hmm. the other parent so they create factions if you're driving like. a wedge yeah. driving a wedge so that's and the interesting I suppose about parental alienation is that we lived this for 20 years almost our whole life and we never knew about this term this concept it was 
two year, two two years into yeah, writing years the book, no, actually, like we're, we're actually you know midway through the, the first yeah. draft of the yeah. book done, yeah, exactly. And then we discovered, you know, we term. talk, you know, we and the term. I mean, you talk about you talk about uh, about Enda Walsh and the Walworth Forest. I mean, I read all the reviews about that. I read all the the great interviews with it was the the, the family, uh, you sure, know, Brendan Gleeson, the Gleeson family, Gleeson. exactly. So I mean, there's a lot of write up and stuff mm. about that. Who, what was taking place there yeah. was like your situation your mom was out of the picture yeah. and as soon as she is away the campaign begins to try and recast the memory you had of her can you maybe tell the listeners how your father goes about doing that with two naive young lads yeah it, it's, it was a, a very quick process step by step process of them um, when we we moved back in, we had spent a year living with our mother, which was we we found very good. Whatever, well, I found very good anyway. Whatever, I was so so about that because again, I I wanted everyone to be back yeah, together. Yeah, you know, yeah. I suppose we should, that was when that was nineteen eighty nine. Nineteen eighty nine. So yeah, you were eight. Yeah. I was ten. So by the time we moved back in a year later, uh, it was nineteen ninety. Uh, nineteen ninety. I was eleven. You were nine. I yeah. suppose just to put an age on yeah. it. So you have that visit. So. We have a visit with our mother at this stage now where we go and meet her and we have, you know, tea and cakes or whatever. And it started with our father saying, OK, when you go down to meet her, Natalie's going to, which is our father's new partner, new yeah. partner start with, uh, she'd brush her hair a certain way, and we'd say, and put different clothes that she had bought us on us rather than clothes our mother had bought us and say okay when you go down you're to tell your mother that this is the clothes that Natalie makes you dress and this is the way Natalie brushes your hair and then it escalated from that to you're not to basically where the, the title of the book comes from don't don't hug your mother you know when you now meet how, her how and when you are told that like that must be way down the track because if it was, any father tells their son, uh, it was a couple of a couple of weeks. Like, it's, a, it's a short period of time, and you look at it. We moved. Uh, so when our parents separated in 1989, we moved out. Unusually, me and Brendan moved out with our mother. Our mother moved out of the family home, and our father stayed in the family home. So that's kind it's of really important. unusual. Yeah, and uh, interestingly, I only learned this recently, Fintan O'Toole article about it, that during the 80s, throughout the entire 80s, the family law said that a wife has no interest in the family home, and that, the yeah, the husband has... A, uh, if the husband is the worker, then he owns the family home. The wife has According no eighties law. Uh, the, the, wife, the wife has no has no uh, claim, to, claim it. to it. And of course, at the same time, the wife is encouraged to stay at home working, or to stay at home working in in the house and not to have a job. So, which leads to imagine all these women in this position where they they may not like their husband or they mm-hmm. what, and and they they have. But essentially to elect to make themselves homeless if they want to leave them. Yeah. Complete dependence. Completely dependent. And that yeah. law only changed patriarchy. in 1989 at Family Law Act. Whether it was happened before or after our parents ever we don't know. Coincidence or not. But it only changed in 1989. So, you know, we moved out of the house with our mother, who had not worked. She was a housewife. You know, uh, our older brother stayed in the house. Immediately, my father's Natalie moved in. His new woman, or, or we call her a stepmother, which she kind of became for a while. She moved in. And then we lived with our mom for a year. And then, and then we moved back in with our father. And that was 1990. And by 1992, it was August 92, when we were banned from seeing our mother again. 
and didn't see her for 18 years. So it was actually only, it was those two years, 1990, 1992, living with her father, while at the same time he was in court cases against her mother, which happened in 1993. So it was all building up towards this as well. And that was part of it. And it's exactly like Brendan says, things like don't, not just don't accept hugs, but when you meet her, don't take gifts off her, which was a really hard thing. As we say, like, um, you know, our mom is giving us a Beano annual and some money. You know, you want to take it. You're what allowed was to the reasoning? What was, like when he was explaining this to you, what is the reason? You're not to take it. You know, they're just bribes. You know, these gifts exactly. are bribes, like, exactly. um, because you know she doesn't love you. She, yeah. she, you know, but she's just bribing you to pretend that she loves yeah. you. Stuff. So yeah. it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me it, anyway. It, it was confusing, but the, yeah. you're exactly right. It was like a bribe. In other words, she's on the other side, and you're on my side. Yeah. And if you take gifts off her, you're siding with her. And it, you know, there was other. You know, at the same time as these things, like instructions to us. There was other things he would say, such as derogatory comments about her. So if we did something that was like he viewed as lazy, he would say, and our mother's name is Josephine, so people called her Joe, and he would say, that's a Joeism. That's what that is. You're lazy. In other words, you're taken after her. If you've been reading Irish literature at all over the last 10 years, you'll know who Paul Murray is. He created one of the standout novels of the last 20 years in Skippy Dies. Uh, It took seven years to write. How this book taught him to never second guess himself and his audience is uh, the extract we've taken from his interview, which is a good hour and a half long, as I remember. And of course, as with all of these available in our archive. But here it is. This is Paul Murray. At the beginning, I told myself it'll take as long as it takes, but at the same time, I didn't think it was going to take seven years, you know. So, um, so I started writing it in, I think, mid 2002, and I was just writing it longhand on A4 paper, and it just like in a growing stack of, of pages, and I had no conception of how long it was until I typed it up. So, it took me about maybe two years of, of just writing this first draft, and then I typed it up, and it took about six months, and it was like I was about like about 1,200 pages long, I think. I had no idea that it was. I had perpetrated this, you know. So the next sort of like five years was spent really just like refining and, and winnowing and uh, trying to find like the, the kind of the, the salient story in there. But it was a slow, like really slow process, just because the thing was just so long and so unwieldy that every time you did a draft, it would take you a, a year, you know. A year. Yeah, just because it was it was just you know mammoth. it was yeah. mammoth. It was just huge, you know. And like every every draft would get shorter, but at the same time it was still enormous. I mean, I was fortunate in that, like, I got sort of like a kind of a decent enough advance for the first book. So, and I was living, like, I had fairly cheap rent, and I didn't have, I didn't, uh, you know, family at that stage, um, or a car or anything, you know. So, so I was able to. Um, I had the time, like, and that's a luxury, you know. I was able to sort of like say, like, like, I can spend sort of five years or six years or seven years at it. But it was alarming in ways that I didn't expect. In that, I think, sort of, to say to yourself, I'm going to spend seven years in this. It sounds like something quite an artistic, kind of artistically bold statement. So you can give yourself kind of like a little pat on the back for that. But what you don't expect, or what I didn't expect, was that your sense of yourself as a writer, or everybody else's sense of you as a writer, kind of starts to dissipate. So, like after a year, my, my first book came out in 2003, and like you know, ideally you're supposed to have a book at every two years. That's what sort of the industry would like you to do. But after sort of year three or year four, you stop seeing your book on, on, in the bookshops, you know, and you stop getting invited to launches or to, to speak at this or at that, you know, and you stop getting mentioned in book pages. And, and like, obviously those things 
are superficial and so forth, and you're not supposed to care about them. But you, you do care about them, you know. And you kind of go, "Well, I'm, I'm firstly, I'm, squ- I'm squandering like whatever goodwill I accumulated yeah. with the first book, and secondly, I'm disappearing. You know, I'm disappearing. I'm, I'm just like, you know, you've no idea whether like a book is going to be any good or not. You know, like yeah. if, if you really don't have any sense at all, and the longer you work on it, the less of a sense you have. Yeah. So you're thinking like I've spent like five years, six years, seven years in this thing that maybe just maybe just like a, a heap of shit. You know, so so. Um, and you know you're watching yourself grow older. You're watching your, you know your friends get married and buy houses and all these adult things. Yeah, and you're and still all doing it on a schedule that isn't seven years. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So so it was a long it was a long haul. I mean, I was really lucky the way the book did. Then you know because because it sort of it, it, it was worth it. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's not always fun. talk about humour for for a minute. Yeah, because obviously you know, your books cross a number of different registers. Yeah, and to me, it's one of the most magical things about. Skippy is how it veers from one to the next, just yeah. as a teenager would. Yeah. You know, splitting yourself laughing, completely depressed the next minute. Yeah. You say that the feedback on the stories was good. People were laughing at the play. Yeah. At what point do you um, have the courage in yourself to just know, well, if it makes me laugh, that's good enough? Yeah. Because it was the light of the stand up, it's like, Man, yeah. I need them to know. I couldn't do that. Like, I couldn't do that. It just seems so terrifying. It, it, it is and it isn't. You know, you I would find it more terrifying to just be able to write it yeah. and have the confidence to go, I don't need to hear 100 people laugh at this. Yeah. I know it's funny. So, But you still, in the beginning, are obviously handing it to people and going, Is this good? Yeah. And they go, Yes. Yeah. How many yeses did you need before you were like, Haha, that's classic? I think I trusted. I think one of the problems you have with um, maybe as a young writer is that humor is not really respected by the literary establishment, Mm -hmm. um, which is why you sort of envious of you know yourself or David or or, um, other comedians who are like can do really interesting things and also are respected for making people laugh. You know, there is something, and I've always said that there needs to be a, a comedy Oscar. Yeah, because it's so hard. Yeah, funny comedy movie. Yeah, like comics are the least respected. Like we're like ah, oh, it's changing. Now, right? it, maybe maybe it is gradually, gradually. But like yeah, still people just think you just do a layabout, you know, a lot of the time. You know, <laughs> she yeah. just goes up and makes it all up when he gets up there. That's what they yeah. think. You know, yeah. if uh, if I was to go home from my parents and tell them that I'm a humor writer now, and I would, yeah. Publishing humor novel, a novel of humor that would be would resonate a lot more. Yeah, I have heard you talk about the establishment not respecting humor, which yeah. is bizarre. When, as you've put it, the whole purpose of novels in, in history yeah. was to look at the truth and the establishment that was there, and kind of poke fun at it throughout these novels. Yeah, does it upset you that? You know, Skippy is not a humor novel per se. Yeah, it's got a lot of humor in it. It's extremely dark. Yeah, does it upset you that people will go? It's very funny. That's a gas book you wrote. That's really, I, I really laughed at Skippy. Something. Yeah, well, that's good. Say. That's good. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's funny. I mean, uh, that's that's. I, I, I'm glad that people find it funny. Definitely. But in terms of the industry. Oh, the industry. I mean, that book did, did well and it got really good reviews, and um, I've no I've no complaints. Like it is odd when someone says. Like someone did call it a, a, a lighthearted romp recently, which is <laughs> it just seemed strange. Like I didn't, I wasn't upset by it. Like, but it just did seem strange. Like that book, in some ways, kind of I didn't have high hopes for it. You know, partly because it is, it's like it's just full of like there's a lot of jokes in it. You know, and that's not what tends to win the Booker. But 
one thing I did learn from from writing it was that you can't second guess your audience. Like the audience is like I thought, like well, basically, like people who like books don't like funny. Yeah. So this thing is is, is fucked basically. Um, but you know, people did like it. People did laugh at the jokes. You know, and, and people of 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 you know, I'd have, I'd do readings and, and I'd, I'd have old ladies come up to me saying, you know, I really enjoyed it. You know, so so you can't presume what people will and, and won't like or will and won't go for. There's so much more still to come in this episode. Enjoy the full thing over on patreon.com forward slash Abroad. Next, we'll hear from Blind Boy and Roddy Doyle, Cecilia Hearn. Uh, there's, there's just an awful lot more to enjoy here. I hope you'll come over this week and make this the week that uh, you sign up for premium. There's no uh, commitment in that you can cancel at any time. You can sign up for a week and decide, meh. Uh, that's all I can afford for now or you can become a long-term patron of this podcast and help us keep the show on the road but trust me if you enjoyed even 10% of these author extracts you will love what is waiting for you in the Irishman Abroad archive hundreds of episodes with the greatest Irish people ever to have lived and of course extra episodes every week with Sonia Sullivan and Marion McKeown the full cut of each episode each week as three full episodes all for the price of a coffee and a fancy bun once a month Brian Connolly's on sound John Marr does the extra research Tina and Mikey make it all possible have a good week